You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Thursday, beautiful country from coast to coast to coast. How's everyone doing today? Went for my first uh, post-COVID run. I uh, was slow. It was short. I was slightly out of breath. And you know how after you do some exercise, you have that kind of surge of purity and you have this, gosh, I am a virtuous person. I've, I've done something good. I, I'm a fit. God, I felt like I was like, okay, I I need a walker. Well, not quite, but I definitely knocked off a couple clicks today from the uh, usual because I just wasn't ready to go for it. And, you know, fully recovered from the COVID, but there, there is a long tail, I guess. Anyway. Good to get out, good to feel the spring air, good to actually feel some movement. Did I end the run at the corner outside coughing like I was a four-pack-a-day smoker? Yes. Yes, I did. So if you saw me on the corner hunched over hacking, that's called good health. That's called feeling fit. That's called, yeah, man. Don't mess with me. I'm quite fit. As I horked up a lung, a COVID lung. Anyway, it matters. Uh, So I hope you're doing well. You guys got to get back out there. You do have to get back out there. Happy St. Paddy's Day. You know, my uh, wife has Irish roots. Her whole family's Irish. My grandmother, Irish-American. I'm named after her, as is my son. So we got the uh, the Irish Jewish blood, and that's actually a bit of the old Irish Jew uh, day today because we got the St. Paddy's Day, and if you're Jewish, you're celebrating Purim. So happy Purim and happy St. Paddy's Day. I'm going to do a little uh, um, segment later in the program because uh, a good friend of my wife and I, he's a great guy, he's taking a day off. He's a, he's a gym owner. He's probably the one of the... He's the guy that we take online fitness classes with, okay? And he's a local guy, Stuart Maskell at Movement Union. And he's become, over the years, a really good friend. Uh, He's a young dad. He's like the greatest guy. And he has morphed his business to save his business. And he has taken people, including us, I got to tell you, um, and inspired us. One of those people, if I, if I, if someone asked me, how'd you get through the last two years of COVID? You know, my wife, my kids, um, my friends, my workmates. But one person I would put in my top category would be Stuart because he just was such an inspiration and such a good person. And, and, and I'm proud that he's become a real good friend of ours. Anyway, he said to me the other day, you know what I'm thinking of doing? I don't know if he's actually going to do this, but we were just kid, kidding around, my wife and he and I. And, and his wife, he said, I'm finally going to get a day off. He never gets a day off. He's got a bunch of kids. He said, maybe I should uh, just uh, do a little St. Paddy's Day day drinking. Now, he's not a drinker. But I thought about that because there's a lot of people that, that are day drinkers, right? Like when they holiday. I'm not talking about alcoholics. I'm talking about people who are going to go on a holiday. And next week, we're, we're taking our first holiday in two years. So I thought... And people are like, oh, are you, gonna, are you just going to sit around and, and start day drinking? And now you know me. I, I don't mind having a drink. 
Um, but I don't, I cannot drink in the day. I get exhausted. Someone says, oh, do you ever go out to lunch and have a glass of beer or wine? I'm like, that would knock me out. I am a six foot four guy. I weigh over 200 pounds. And if I have like a beer at lunch, I am on my ass. I am on my back. I am exhausted. I cannot, I'm not a big drinker. I'm a lightweight. My wife laughs at me. I'm a notorious lightweight. We're not big drinkers. But people are like on vacation there. So I'm going to ask you later, as I still hack up a lung here, do you day drink on holiday? Like, is that your idea of a good time? I'm just going to. 12 o'clock comes or 1 o'clock, whatever time in the day. Do you just, do you just like lay it on? And there's some folks that will do that. And we'll find out. So we'll talk a bit about that. Um, Speaking of traveling, and, and, and we're in the travel zone because we're going away next week, and I'm, so I'll be off next week. Um, the health minister today announced new border measures that, and we knew this because we broke this news to you yesterday, as of April 1st, um, you don't need these pre-travel tests. So here's what uh, the Minister of Health, Duclos, just said to the peeps. Effective April 1st, 2022, fully vaccinated travelers will no longer be required to complete a pre-entry test for travel to Canada. Yeah, okay. We knew that. There'll be random testing on on arrival. But the Arrive Can app is is you still need that. So so you don't need these tests. So as I said to you yesterday, you know, my wife and son and daughter and I, you know, we got our tests and we got our PCR tests to prove that we've had COVID. So we don't have to test when we get back. And now you don't even need it. So there's 600 bucks out the toilet. Thank you, government. Um, but if, if maybe you're taking a cruise, and I just want to play this um, because a lot of people now say, okay, I want to go on a cruise. And remember, two years ago, cruise ships were like mobile COVID spread, super spreader events. But here's what uh, the Minister of Transport said. What will this mean for cruise ships? Passengers on a cruise uh, will need to take an antigen test no more than one day before the scheduled departure, but will no longer be required to be <coughs> tested before getting off the cruise ship. Okay, <clears throat> pardon me. That's great. That's all wonderful, isn't it? So now we're easing up. Here's the problem. And Sam and I were talking about this this morning. Now that you're free to travel and you're much more mobile, guess what? You better book your trip now because gas prices and with inflation at like five and a half, five point seven percent. We're being told now, book your travel now because there's so much demand and the fuel costs are so high. You know this from the pain at the pumps that the prices are going up like 60 percent, 100 percent, 150 percent. Because of travel costs and fuel costs. So just when you think it's great, I can travel, COVID's over, really, there's a secret little hold on your travel. It's just too damn expensive to travel now. If you haven't booked your flight, we booked this flight. We're, we're, we're leaving on Saturday. We booked it six months ago, eight months ago. Today, unaffordable. That's the big thing. It, things are so expensive. It's like the world is conspiring to keep us home, right? Okay, 
You've been home for two years. You can't travel. Now you want to travel, and now you've got inflationary costs, 5.5%, the highest in like 30 years. And then the airlines are like, oh, that your airline ticket just went up 55%. So good luck traveling. Good luck trying to do anything. So, yeah, the travel restrictions are easing, but you don't have to buy that $600 PCR test. Don't worry, 600 bucks, we're just going to add that to your plane ticket. So welcome to the world. This is not good news, but all this is happening after March break. So I don't know. You could tell me if you're going to travel. Everybody wants to travel now. The whole world wants to move around. We've been stuck, but moving around comes at a premium now. Everything comes at a premium. The world's so damn expensive. Okay. Now, I want to take a break in a minute and... And something happened last night on CBC. The, the um, defense minister said to CBC, and, and I'll play it for you. Yeah, we can't basically, we can't ship any more lethal aid to Ukraine because you know what? We're out of equipment. We don't have the money. Like, what? This is how desperate things are here. We may not have any more ammunition and any more lethal weapons to send to Ukraine, even if we wanted to help them fight the Russians, because we're out of juice. So we'll talk about that, and we'll dovetail back to those comments by the foreign affairs minister who told me, and we talked about this, well, that's okay, we're not a military power anyway, we're just good at convening. Well, we better get good at buying some military equipment. Uh, General Fraser is going to join us on the other side of a break. Stay with us. As this story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada. A happy St. Paddy's Day. Happy Purim, whatever you're celebrating today. Always celebrate if you can. Life's too short without it. Um, pretty extraordinary comments. I'm going to go over some comments on the military. I want to get some perspective, some understanding from our... Our good friend Dave Fraser, who's the retired major general in Canada, decorated military officer, first general to command American troops in combat since the Second World War, served our country for 32 years. Now is our specialist on defense at CTV News. Uh, general Fraser, thanks for your service to our country, and great to have you back, Dave. Evan, good to be with you today. I thought, okay, let me go to um, our colleagues at CBC on Power Play last night, um, uh, Vashi, or sorry, yeah, it was on Power and Politics, right? On <laughs> CBC's Power and Politics. Uh, Vashi, um, the host, asked the, the defense minister, Anita Nand, the, uh, a question about um, military supplies to Ukraine. And uh, Vashi Kapilos asked, and here's what the minister told um, her last night on CBC. We have provided all of the lethal aid so far from Canadian Armed Forces inventory. At the current time, as I said, we are looking at a number of additional options. We need to make sure that we do retain uh, capacity here for the Canadian Armed Forces should the need arise. I was stunned. And and I had talked to Anita Anand, the defense minister, on question period. 
but she couldn't do a power play last night. So she, she goes on CBC and, and Dave Fraser, she says, we've provided all the lethal aid so far from the Canadian forces inventory. Um, we need to make sure we can retain capacity here for the Canadian armed forces. Should the need arise? Like, are we out? Is that it for Canada? Dave Fraser? Well, in short, we're not out. Um, and simplistically, it, it's when my last job in the forces was, you know, uh, army doctrine and training, including ammunition. And it's one of the most complex things you have to deal with because it's not like you go down to Walmart and you buy this stuff. Uh, there are training stocks and then there are operational stocks and then what I would call war stocks. And there are certain, uh, you know, numbers that, you know, Canada keeps to make sure that if we ever do go to war, we have enough ammunition uh, for our own troops uh, so that they can actually use it in in combat. Right. And, and I will tell you, I will tell you from experience, uh, I've seen other nations actually go short on that. And when they are called to go in, into combat, um, it's pretty embarrassing when you run out of ammunition because you don't have it. So I, I think on the surface, uh, you know, I understand what the minister is saying because we're not going to sell short our own men and women in uniform. But, you know, at the same time, I would say, you know, Ukraine is in dire need of ammunition. So what can we do uh, to supply them with what they need? Either, uh, you know, as I say, have we gone through the wire with what we have here or are there other nations in the world that are not engaged that we can go buy ammunition and give it to the Ukrainians? Yeah, but it's it, it, this is going to raise a bigger question. Anita Anand is the former procurement minister, now the minister of defense. Now she's saying, look, uh, we got, we've done a lot. By the way, we haven't actually given a lot of lethal aid. We've given some, but not close to even a, a ratio of what the U.S. And, and the U.K. have given. But... I, my question is, we, you know, we're, we're what, 1.39, 1.4% of our GDP is spent on defense. We're not close to the 2%. I called sources in PMO this morning. I asked when the prime minister goes to Brussels for the extraordinary NATO meeting on next Thursday, is he going to announce 2%? Uh, and we're going to spend and hit that goal, which, by the way, is like another $18 billion annually. They said, no, that is not going to happen. But does this show... General Fraser, that we have let our stocks and our military deplete too lowly. We just have not kept up. Well, and it's a very good question, and uh, it is a it is a valid question to the minister to ask. Um, do we have the the war stocks and the operational stocks that we should have? That would be just a simple question to ask uh, the minister. Uh, over you know, and if the answer is yes, um, then is there any surplus that can be given to the Ukrainians? And what she is telling us is no. So we're. It appears that we are right at the edge of what we should have in the weapon depots in Canada for our own usage. So that by itself suggests that um, we're not buying an lot of extra. Uh, in case of, and the only question I have is, do we have enough uh, based on what we should be having? Well, I speak to General Fraser on this. It does remind me, and you and I spoke about this, but I'll replay it for our audience. Uh, when I spoke to the Foreign Affairs Minister, 
she kind of said, you know, look, we're not even a military power. Here's how she described Canada's military position. Canada is not a nuclear power. It is not a military power. We're a middle-sized power. And what we're good at is convening and making sure that diplomacy is happening. That, by the way, there's been articles written about those comments. We're not a nuclear power. True. We're not a military power. Not true. We're not a military superpower. But are we not a military power? We're good at convening. Uh... You know, when you hear those comments, General Fraser, and you hear and then the defense minister saying, you know, like, we, we, we just don't have any extra stuff to give to Ukraine. What does that tell Canadians? Well, first of all, uh, we do have a military. We spend at least 1.3 percent of our GDP on the military. The men and women that I serve with, the men and women that I know are serving are proud Canadians and proud of wearing the uniform and proud of their distinguished operational and combat record, including uh, Afghanistan, Korea, our UN peacekeeping, the Cold War days, World War II. When the call is asked of the men and women to serve this nation, we do. And we do it with the blood and sweat and toil of young Canadians. 40,000 Canadians went to Afghanistan, 158 Men and women were killed in Afghanistan. I think it's 164, 166 Canadians in total. Every one of those people are proud of wearing the flag and serving our nation over and above uh, of Canadian. We are prepared to back it up as a last resort with uh, well-trained, well-proportioned uh, activities. Just for the record, you and I go back. You sound unhappy with her remarks let's be clear i'm a proud canadian that i wore the uniform and we may not be all those things that she said but we are more than what she said okay so now what what do we so if so so what do we there is going to be a a a a a budget coming up they've got to have some new options to spend what are the urgent needs do you have a minute for the urgent needs for the canadian military right now given the listen we're in a new world we're in a new cold war uh the urgent needs are uh what is our policy and what are we going to do for the north where we border to uh, russia and we've got a near arctic power china who has shown interest in that what are we going to do for norad renewal what are we going to do for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capability for this country? Uh, what are we going to do about protecting our three coasts? Uh, you know, there, what are we going to do? And beyond talk, what are we going to do to deliver the effects to protect Canadians? Because Putin has shattered our, our belief that we've been living in a peaceful existence by attacking Ukraine. Um, and this could provide opportunities for other nations or uh, individual actors to try to attack our democracy. So what are we going to do to defend it? Mm. Uh, General Fraser, amazing to have you on. As always, my God, things are... Who'd have thought every day we're talking about a war? And and, and we'll, there's lots more to talk about and what Russia's doing and what they've done in Mariupol. Um, Dave Fraser, I appreciate it. Thanks for your service, General Fraser. Um Please stick around, everybody, because there's a there's an MP from Ukraine, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, Ina Sovson. OK, I spoke to her uh, last night. She's in an undisclosed location. This conversation about what's going on on the ground 
and how the leadership there is approaching the fight, the war against Russia. You cannot miss. It's next. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. What's going on in Ukraine is so heartbreaking, and what's going on in Mariupol is so heartbreaking. There is a report that I tweeted out, and at Evan L. Solomon, if you want to check it out. Uh, There are two incredible AP reporters, Associated Press reporters in Mariupol, and and the scenes they talk about, the, the kids who have been killed, the mass graves, as Russia lay siege to annihilate Mariupol. Last night, there was a theater that was bombed and, 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 and hundreds of people in there. Apparently, there are survivors, thank God. Uh, we don't know the casualty rate. But I wanted to get a... I'm always trying to get a sense of, of what the Ukrainian leaders are. So every day, I'm trying to reach out to Ukrainian members of parliament and, and people I know there. And I, I want to play you a conversation that I had with a Ukrainian MP named uh, Ina... Sovson, she's from uh, one of the parties there, and Ina was in Kiev, but she's left Kiev just for a little while. She's at an undisclosed location right now. I want to play you this conversation because her answers are so thorough, and 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 she just gives us a picture of what is happening on the ground. And I just thought this was so compelling. So I just just take a minute to listen to this on the ground report of a woman. She hadn't seen her family in 10 days. She There's a war going on. She's working in government. And yet she's giving us a report from this undisclosed location. And I asked Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson to give us a sense of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine right now. Well, the situation on the ground is uh, very tense, as it has been from day one of the war. Uh, So uh, as for Kiev, uh, the two days curfew has been imposed uh, yesterday evening, uh, so 24 hours ago. Uh, That's actually the reason why I'm in the Western Ukraine right now. I decided to use this opportunity to go visit my son, whom I haven't seen since the first day of war. Uh, And uh, apparently the the curfew was uh, imposed because uh, there are major counteroffensive on the Ukrainians site that are trying to push Russian forces uh, from the boundaries of Kiev on the northwest. And also because the Russians have sent uh, the so-called infiltrators group into the city. Uh, Those are just uh, small groups of people pretending to be uh, civilians, uh, Ukrainian civilians, uh, whose task is to uh, make mess in the city, like random shootings on the buildings, on people, trying to get into some administrative buildings and so on. Uh, The the, uh, Ukrainian police in Kiev reported that uh, as of this uh, evening, they already caught 105 of those infiltrators, but there are still many others uh, like that in the city. So everyone not directly involved in the fight uh, were uh, advised to stay home or to leave the city, which I did. But the situation in Kiev is tense. Uh, Yesterday evening when I was still in Kiev, I could hear the sounds of uh, major battles taking place in in the uh, cities of Irpin and Bucha, uh, which we hope will will, uh, allow for Ukrainian army to push the Russians further and and, uh, will destroy the majority of their forces and that side. But of course, the situation in other areas is is much, much more tragic, particularly in the cities like Kharkiv, 
the Russians are continuing to bombard it from air uh, just daily, uh, day and night, and especially Mariupol. Mariupol right now is, is just it's unbelievable what the Russians are doing. They're basically holding 400,000 people hostages there. They hardly allowed for, for some people to leave. And then uh, today in the evening, like two or three hours ago, uh, we learned that uh, they they opened fire onto the cars with um, children in them trying to evacuate from the city of Mariupol, which has been under siege for more than two weeks. And an hour ago, we learned another terrible news that the Russians, uh, the, the airplane, um, dropped a bomb, a large bomb, uh, onto the building of a drama theater in Mariupol, where hundreds of people were hiding. They are mainly uh, children uh, with their mothers or grandmothers. Uh, that is terrifying. I can't imagine what people in Mariupol are experiencing. This is terrible. And, and this is, uh, well, the situation on the ground as it is. The Russians continue uh, to prove that they are completely unable to fight Ukrainian army on the ground. So instead, they turn into terror. They are, well, they are a terrorist state, and they are now uh, killing civilians. That is the worst that any country can do, and they are doing it right now in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I, I know that your president has asked NATO repeatedly for a no-fly zone to close the skies. Uh, that is not happening. Although many weapons are coming in, that is not the case. And in the meantime, after all that tragic uh, news that you've just conveyed, which we are watching, um, there are apparently some peace talks. President Zelensky said that NATO may be willing, or Ukraine may be willing to say, we will never join NATO. Um, can you give us your sense of what he said and, and if these peace talks are making any progress? Well, first of all, as to the uh, recent development in terms of provision of uh, weapons to Ukraine, uh, we did hear from President Biden that uh, the United States will be providing some sorts of uh, air defense system to Ukraine, which is already better than nothing, because uh, we uh, have for quite some time already not been asking for any country to intervene in terms of establishing a no-fly zone, but we were asking and continue to ask to provide us uh, with the equipment, with the weapons, with the jets, uh, with the air defense system necessary so that we can ensure a no-fly zone ourselves. And, and there seems to be some progress in that direction. I just wish that progress came much earlier before they dropped that bomb on, on hundreds of people in Mariupol and, and many other cities. But there seems to be some progress in terms of providing us with uh, some weapons. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, we, we need more. Uh, we need more in order to save our people from uh, that monster. Uh, but, uh, well, uh, th there seems to be some progress in that but not to the extent that we actually need, but still. In terms of the talks right now, it's extremely difficult to um, comment on that because there are lots of, of Russian narratives in that. And apparently the majority of the news we are hearing are from Lavrov, which we can never trust. No one should ever trust the word he is saying. But apparently right now, uh, they have uh, changed their initial position because initially they were speaking about change of government in Kiev, uh, uh, keeping the country under control, uh, um, uh, keeping economy under control. We did see that huge plan of how they were planning to take over the country. But uh, right now they only speak in that maybe a neutral state a status to Ukraine, that that should work. Uh, I, uh, well, what can I say about that? Uh, I will remind everyone listening that in 2014, uh, Ukraine was officially a neutral state. It was part of our constitution. It said that we're a neutral, non-allied state. And uh, in 2014, uh, Russia annexed Crimea and started the war in Donbass. Uh, 
So, sorry, I, I'm not buying the idea that if you are neutral, you are safe. The very recent history is teaching us that we can never be safe with uh, Russia uh, around, with Russia still being hostile to Ukraine. Uh, so I do believe that this is a terrible offer that they are uh, forcing Ukraine into making. And I just hope the whole world uh, will um, realize why that is a bad scenario for Ukraine. That is uh, Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson. How incredible was that? How clear-eyed, how hard-nosed, how real is that? So I talked to her again a little afterwards, and I asked her about the peace talks a little more. She said something that resonated with me I'm going to share with you. I said, well, what do you make of this, these, this idea that Russia's going to ask for neutrality? And she said, it's a lie. She said, look... We've had agreements, the Minsk agreements with Russia. They've lied before. We've tried neutrality, as she said in that interview, which I thought was fascinating. And then here's what she said that that is so telling. I said, how are these talks going to work? And she said, let me tell you something. The only diplomat with any force right now in Ukraine is the army. The only diplomat with any power right now in Ukraine is the army. In other words, you want to talk with the Russians, beat them on the battlefield. You want to bring the Russians to the table and make something meaningful, you got to beat them. The only diplomat for us today is the army. We have nothing else. They are shelling us and murdering us and the only thing they'll listen to is force. All right, uh, Scott Reed's joining us. We're going to do some texts and calls next. Lots to come. What a powerful person. One, two, three. Bear, 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 bear. A long time ago, way back in history, when all there was to drink was nothing but cups of tea. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Okay, happy St. Patty's Day and happy Purim. And uh, I'm going on vacation. And someone said, where are you going? Oh, we're going down south. Are you just going to just relax, man? You haven't had a vacation in a long time. Are you just going to just pound the booze? It's like, am I going to what? Yeah, day drink. You know, you go, you chill out, you have drinks all day. I'm like, I'm not a drinker like that. I will enjoy a, a beer or a glass of wine or a scotch. Sometimes I like a, a vodka on the rocks, you know, with an olive in a, in a rocks glass. I'm not a big drinker, though. Okay, it's not my thing. I don't, I, we don't drink at dinner. A lot of people do. They have, the, the, you know, the nightly bottle of wine. I also don't judge people that do it. It's, I'm just telling you what we're doing. If you do it, I don't care. Many of my friends do it. It's not. Uh, this is not some teetotaling uh, superiority complex. I'm just telling you my habits. This is what I do. I drink a lot of coffee. I drink water. I, but I'm just not. I get tired. I'm a lightweight. Okay. Even when I go on, you know, my best friends and I, when we go on our canoe trips, and the boys will drink. I'm like, they'll drink three beers by the time I'm finished one. I'm just a slow, uh, lightweight drinker, not nothing. And I don't day drink, but I want to ask you, 
because I'm about to go on vacation. When you go out, when you're having a day, chill day, vacation day, do you, do you, would you drink during the day? Like, I don't know, 1 o'clock comes, 12 o'clock comes, 3 o'clock comes. Like, what is the drink time? And is, are you someone that would drink throughout a day? Is that, like, I'm trying, because someone asked me, are you, are you going to do some day drinking? I, I didn't even know the term, and I don't do it. But one eight five five six three three ten ten and seven ten ten. Now, that doesn't mean you're just going to get blottoed. But you never know. Some people like it. I am so past the point where I, where if I drink at night, I just, the next morning, I feel like crap. Even if I smoke a cigar, which I like to do, couple times a year cigar reminds me of my dad and you know i lost my dad in november my dad went through a long phase where he liked to smoke a cigar on a saturday night and we would sometimes smoke a cigar with him and and when i smell a cigar i think of my father and i love that i love that and i it brings me um like i will smoke a cigar on this holiday and i will think of my dad but my dad He's a we was a one drink guy. Let me know one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Someone said I wish I could. I usually pass out after four drinks. Four drinks? That's not bad. Evan, if you like vodka on the rocks, try vodka vodka in in Alma. Okay. By the way, my wife made me. I can't even say about six months ago or in the summer a white Russian. I'd never really had one. I know that sounds pathetic. Uh, it was like she found some Kahlua or something. It was great. I, this was pre-war, just for the record. Uh, Evan, coffee and water, yum. No, not like, it's not together, but that's those are my drinks. I drink a big, big carafe of coffee, and throughout the day I'll drink water. Beer, as long as it's amber, I'll drink two a day, then I'll face a two-day hangover. Okay. Uh, someone says they start their day drinking at 11 a.m., Steve on the 403. Okay, Steve, what's up? What? Give me your, like, your it's vacation. What do you drink? Oh, I'm drinking uh, rum and coke, my friend. And what's your, do? when does it start? When does the rum and coke start? Uh, five o'clock somewhere, so whenever the heck I want. Are you, so, like, you're on vacation. It's a Saturday. When would your first drink be? Um, as early as 9 or 10. Nine or ten in the morning? Why not? So I mean, how I'm, many... not gonna, I'm not going to pound them back. I'll nurse them. I'll, you know, Holy enjoy them. God. Nice. Okay, so so how many will you go through a day? Give me a. I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to get a sense of this. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Half dozen. Dozen. Well, that's a day. Half dozen or dozen. And are you the next day? Are you just feeling like you got hit? by a truck or are you like whatever good good to go i'm usually whatever and are you celebrating are you celebrating saint patty's tonight are you going to go for it tonight oh of course i am okay what's your saint patty's uh, recipe uh honestly i don't really have one i just got to do whatever i feel like 
Well, happy St. Patty. Don't drink and drive. That's my only dad moment, oh, Steve. Oh, God, no. Never. No, you're a good man, but enjoy it. You know what? I will say this. Enjoy. We got to enjoy. I, we need some love. We need some happiness. So enjoy, man. No judgment here. Kev, Kevin on the DVP, what's your drinking? Give me give me some advice. And I, my, my friends laugh at me because I'm a super lightweight. I'm not a teetotaler, but believe me, I'm a lightweight. But go for it. Well, I'm not a big drinker either, but I have a fully stocked bar. I drink for the same reason I eat. I like the flavor. It's not about the intoxication. So, you know, when I went to Europe for the first time a few years ago, I'm in Belgium. Well, of course, I would have a flight, which is the greatest invention ever. So I could try five different beers, but only have four ounces of each. And, you know, the equivalent to a pint at lunch and make note of what I like, you know, and then I do the same thing later that night. And uh, I did that the whole time I was in Belgium, but I never got intoxicated or, or anything like that. And it's kind of like that here, you know, tonight I'm going to celebrate St. Patrick's day, which I don't really celebrate, but I have three really good Irish whiskeys. So I'm going to choose one of them and have a single shot and, you know, raise a glass to St. Patty. I, like I said, yeah. I haven't been drunk since 1989. I don't like myself when I'm drunk. Nice. Hey, uh, by the way, I love Irish whiskey, too, and I will be raising an Irish whiskey glass tonight as well. Uh, what is your go-to Irish whiskey? Uh, it's either the uh, the Red Spot or, um, for a cheap whiskey, the Teeling is great. It's really nice and smooth. And uh, Writer's Tears. Writer's Tears. Good call. I love that one. Uh, thank you. Uh, happy St. Patty's. Evan, it's vacation. I start at about 5 a.m. in the morning with a coffee and a Bailey's, then a mimosa at breakfast, then a Moscow Mules. I don't even know what that is. Someone tell me what a Moscow Mule is for the rest of the day. Holy Mackinac. 5 a.m.? Well, at least you're up at 5 a.m. Uh, do I have time for one more call here? Um, that is amazing. Uh, Chris, go for it. By the way, point. I got to look up a Moscow Mule. Go for it. What's up? They're delicious. Ginger. Um, I... I... When I day drink, it's normally like on a weekday, and it's like on a Tuesday, and I'll, I'll get up at like 8.30 in the morning, I'll have a beer, and I sit on my front porch so everybody going to work can see me. And <laughs> I, I usually stop at about noon and carry on with my day, but I, I run my own business, so every once every two, three months, kind of got a free day to myself, and I'll just take that for what it is. Kids go nice. off to school, and I'll... I'll, I'll I'll pop a cold one. Happy St. Patrick's Day, by the way. Happy St. Patrick's Now, who, happy St. Patrick's to you. I got 20 seconds. Do you ever, since the legalization of pot, do you ever say, I'm going to throw in a joint or something? <laughs> I actually kind of quit. Nice. <laughs> I okay. Spoke, I spoke more when it was illegal for some reason. <laughs> <didn't> I? <laughs> I don't know. It's, Chris. It's getting old, right? At that time, yeah, yeah. That's so sleep. good. Uh, hey, Chris, um, first of all, you're in Kitchener, a great place. Happy St. Patty's. Enjoy. I'm glad you're a small business owner, and thanks for doing it. I just found out what a Moscow mule was, vodka, ginger beer, lime juice. I'm learning stuff here. Oh, actually, Scott Reed's on the other side of the break. I'm going to ask him about, uh, you know, we'll talk politics, but when did your dad give you the first drink, and when did you give your kids your first drink? Next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this 
is the Evan Solomon Show. It is time for Overhyped and Underplayed with our good friend, Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Yes, Scotty, happy St. Patty's Day. How are you, sir? Happy St. Patty's Day, my... uh... My my friend uh, O'Sullivan. You, you can say Happy Purim because you know my wife's got the Irish side. She's all Irish, the Quinn clan. So I've got the there Quinn go. and the Solomon. So so we'll be drinking Irish whiskey tonight and maybe trying some homentoshin. You uh, with your brood will be celebrating. Are you gonna Are you gonna pop a cork tonight? I will definitely. Yeah, and when I don't know where you come from, this talk of tonight uh, bores me. I will not be able to make it to tonight. This is uh, St. Patty's Day. This is uh, St. Patty's Day, but like, what is it like? It's like twenty-seven degrees outside here in Toronto today. So, uh, oh, so when you start, when you, I, I know, are you? Let me just ask you. I just get, I just get it off. Obviously, all their listeners want to know. You've been drinking before the segment. Oh, of course. But I, I want to be. <laughs> You're doing some drug radio with people. Yeah, I want to be transparent with people. That 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 is true uh, every week. So I don't want to blame that on the Irish. <laughs> okay, good, um, good, good. Are no, you do you always to... have a couple drinks before the segment? Like because there, I, I've often I For get sure. a lot of letters after at seven ten ten. They're like, how many do you think Scott's had? We got a little side hustle bet going on that. I need pills. I need pills to take the edge off because if you think this is intense, you have no idea what unfiltered read is. So yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm always uh, I'm always affected. Uh, no, no, I'm not that much of a mess. But I will definitely. I'm gonna. I'm just uh, texting some buddies, and we're gonna go have a we're gonna go have a, a pint and uh, and a little bit of Irish stew at our favorite local who's uh, serving up Irish stew today. Is that so, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so now you've got kids. I was uh, thinking about. <laughs> when I first, uh, you know, drank with my my kids, my daughter's not much of a drinker, but my son, I was uh, uh, just before the pandemic, so two and a half years ago, uh, I was out uh, speaking at Memorial University in St. John's in uh, Newfoundland, and uh, uh, and we went to a pub. I took him with me. We spent five days. We were with our good buddy Mark Critch, the comedian and the actor. Uh, as you know, Critchie's a great guy. And we went to a pub and my son got screeched in and I've got the great video of him uh, kissing the cod. And um, yeah, he was scree- I'm not going to say where because I don't think he was of age, but it was great to have my his first. I found out later it was not his first drink, but his first drink with his dad. That is super fun. Well, my two older boys, 23 and 19. So we've done, uh, for sure, uh, memorable times going out. Um, but when they, uh, each on the day that they turned 19, I had a drink with them. So uh, yeah. in particular, I remember when um, when my the guy is now going to be turning 20 very shortly, but we, uh, he and me and his older brother uh, got together and had a little drink. They were going out that night to celebrate as younger people will. I wasn't part of that program, but but uh, we all got together and uh, and hoisted one, and uh, and that was a great uh, great bonding. Would you uh, ever get because... drunk? And let me ask you: uh, This is an interesting thing. Would you ever go in front of your kids, get pie eyed? 
No, I, I would be very uncomfortable with that. But they did. I would. I would they, they caught me drunk once, and I don't actually get stinking drunk very often. Like that's a fairly rare thing for me because I consume so much that my tolerance is kind of astronaut level, you <laughs> know. God. But um, I can't drink certain kinds of things. Like I can't drink vodka. And one night, these guys, these buddies of mine, tried to convince me to have a little bit of vodka. And next thing you know, my sons were like, they showed up and they were like, "What is going on?" My 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 older son worked in a bar that I used to go to, and so you know he. He was like, he, he'd never seen me have more than a couple of beers. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm like, you know, picking guys, you know, off their stools and going, come fight. on, I love you, but I'm going to punch you, but I love you. So he was like, dad, what, oh, what's going on? What is go- I don't, I, I, first of all, I am such a lightweight. It would be a hilarious, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely the cheaper side of that drunk. All right. Should we get to the news or just talk about, um, um, you know, just having a good time. I do feel like, uh, it, it, you know, good for you for going out and having a good time because you need it, right? Like we are, it is, we are low on the good times and high on the sadness, tragedy, depression. But let, let, let me get to the news because I really do want to hear your political views outside of your drinking views. Um, you've written speeches for politicians for many years and you know a good speech. I want to hear your analysis of, of the Ukrainian President Zelensky. He's making these extraordinary speeches, lots of Churchillian comparisons. Um, I'll just play you one when he used Canadian symbols in his speech. Here's what he talked about, uh, his Can You Imagine speech. Currently, we have 97 children that died during this war. Can you imagine famous CN Tower in Toronto? If, they, if it was hit by Russian bombs. Of course, I don't wish this on anyone, but this is our reality. What did you make of this speech, Scott? So, I, I, like everyone, I thought it was extremely powerful. I, I'd say two things in particular about it. And one of them, in my view, means that as much praise as it's gotten, and, and in some ways overpraised, I think that the issue has still been underplayed. And I think the coverage of it has still been underplayed because if you take a look at his speech, so the first thing that he does is the fundamental test of any good speech. Um, it doesn't matter what your vocation is, but certainly if you're a leader and certainly if you're a wartime leader, right? Connecting with people, that's the fundamental test. How did he connect to the Canadian parliament? Well, he gave us the most graphic, most visual, most get you where you live examples by invoking the Ottawa airport, the city of Vancouver, the CN Tower. He took our symbols and said, if they were in my country today, they'd be crumbling and in flames. That made it graphic for everyone who was listening. And that raised it to a level of moral imperative that was very difficult um, to shake. I'll, I'll add one. And then he did the same thing. And he actually used the visual cue of a video in the U.S. Congress when he spoke with them yesterday, the day after speaking to Canada. But I would add one more thing. And this is what I think was underplayed. He also said for the first time in the international stage in our speech, one line that wasn't a soaring flight of rhetoric, but he said, I recognize that Ukraine is not a NATO country and will not become a NATO country. Mm-hmm. I thought that was quiet code. I thought that was, I thought that was card playing. I thought that was playing a card on the international stage for whatever behind the scenes negotiations and efforts are being made diplomatically with the Russians. And these negotiations that we hear now are becoming more realistic, quote unquote, to quote Zelensky himself. I thought that that was an important signal. I think in the years to come, we'll remember his speech to the Canadian parliament, not just for that graph, visualization that made it so uh, powerful and emotional for all of us but for that line about NATO and acknowledging that that might have been if we can wind this thing down diplomatically in the weeks to come I think we'll look back and see that that line was the first step down that path 
Speaking of Scott Reed, yeah, it, it was, as I'd said at the time, it was powerful, it was personal, but it was purposeful. There was a purpose there, and the purposeful element of it, uh, you know, this guy is working on a lot of levels. Um, what did you make, uh, Scott, uh, I got two minutes here, overhyped and underplayed? I mean, there's two things. Overhyped or underplayed, the conservatives now support a no-fly zone. Overhyped or underplayed, the foreign affairs minister says Canada's not a military power. We are a good at convening overhyped or underplayed those two um i think they're both overhyped i think that the conservative position is kind of a predictable position i mean it does speak to how they are guardrail to guardrail these days you know but now now they're back to being hawks which you know frankly conservative movements contemporarily have not necessarily been hawks in the same way that cold war warriors were but i, I don't think it's that shocking a position if they were in government they wouldn't have the luxury of taking that position but they're in opposition they can stand there and 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 say that without fear that left actually manage the consequences um, and it doesn't hurt if they push people. Uh, so that's uh, so I, I I think that's a bit overhyped in the sense that people get too excited about it. I think that um, I, 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 I think as a as a guy who worked in politics and particularly worked in government for a long time, when it comes to Julie's comments, yeah, in isolation, you can say, OK, good. You know, convening is actually an important international relations exercise. It's something that we want to do. It is something that has value. But. I really think, to my ear, as a former senior political aide, that's a minister repeating the kind of language that goes on within boardrooms over at the Pearson Building at, at Foreign Affairs, but within buildings and boardrooms, in briefings with senior officials all around the, the town. And what's, what skilled ministers who are skilled communicators learn very quickly is that the jargon and the lingo you use with your senior officials does not always scan right. in public and right. is not the same. She thought that sounded clever. It did sound clever in a boardroom in Pearson. It did not sound clever on your show. Uh, um, just the opposite. I, I, uh, Scott Reed, someone just said, Gobuck said, has Scott ever written a speech for politicians after a few drinks? Enjoy St. Patty's Day, my friend. You're, you're a great guy. Enjoy with the kids. you got to take a break. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. I want to tell, I want to get a story for you now about an extraordinary mission that happened from some Canadians who worked together to take two Ukrainian kids and their families here to Canada to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. So these two kids who are battling cancer but couldn't get treated in their war-torn country, could come. And it's a pretty amazing story. And I want to bring on Mike Coyle. He's a retired lieutenant colonel and vice president now of, of Radical Ventures Canada. He was part of Canada's um, CANSOF, our special forces. He served our country for a long time. Lieutenant Colonel Coyle, great to have you back on the show. Great to be here, Evan. Thank you. And our listeners will know your your partner and your good friend, Steve Day, who who is an old friend of mine as well. Um, you at Reticle Ventures and, and a group of people have helped bring these two kids battling cancer from Ukraine. I just want to just tell us this story, Mike, if you can, and and how this this mission happened. You flew over and and, and how, how these kids were identified. What's the story here? Yeah, well, Evan. First of all, it it is a it is a great Canadian story. It's a story of uh, Canadians uh, coming together at a time of need, 
to support those um, who aren't in a great position. And in this case, we had some amazing collaboration um, that took place across public, private, nonprofit, and charitable organizations. Um, and really, we were moving at the speed of trust. As you said, uh, we had the mission to, um, to bring back to Canada two kids uh, with cancer and there's and they're supporting families. And uh, we were able to do that within uh, within 10 days from flash to bang, managing uh, a very complex and challenging uh, environment and fluid situation. Okay, so how, tell us exactly what happened, who the kids were and how it happened. Yeah, well, well, uh, well essentially, um, these kids were in Ukraine when the war broke out and obviously, um, you know, being... Um, uh, having cancer, uh, they're in a very critical state. So when, you know, the country is, is, uh, is in turmoil like that, they have to get out of that country. They made their way uh, through uh, Lviv and into a uh, Polish medical clinic that's, uh, that's part of the St. Jude's uh, Global Network, which is a tremendous organization. Uh, from there, they were, they were triaged and identified to be able to come back to, uh, to Canada. So Sick kids in Toronto played a, a pivotal role in, in coordinating with the medical professionals at the Polish uh, at the Polish clinic uh, to understand what their needs were, to determine if they would be able to receive them, and then how best to do that. And then once that sort of initial link was put in place, then uh, what we were able to do is, as part of the, the wider team that includes, you know, Redical, the team Redical. Uh, Amon Lara, uh, lead NGO organization, the IRCC from, uh, from the government supporting all the visa requirements. We had the private donor because, of course, this has to get funded. Um, and we had a number of other stakeholders uh, involved. So essentially, you know, took them from, you know, within that 10-day period, looking at coordinating all the family's requirements uh, at the far end. Uh, looking at how we are going to uh, bring them back from uh, an airlift perspective and also uh, caring for them en route uh, with all of their medical needs, um, working with the IRCC to help uh, expedite the, uh, the visa application processes, and then you know, clearly securing the funding from the donor and, and the commitment to be able to move forward. Okay, so, so, so let's get into the actual, so you get on the flight, what does it entail to rescue these kids? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's, um, it's really important to understand what their, their medical needs are, so that, that triaging and that dialogue between the medical professionals is critical, because what we, the last thing we want to do is take a, uh, a, a very, very challenging situation and, and make it worse. Um, so part of that involves medical planning, but also medical planning for a long haul uh, aviation transatlantic flight. Um, so there's a lot of coordination involved there. We worked with um, uh, a former um, special operations uh, aviator and his company um, in uh, the United Kingdom uh, to be able to, uh, to do that and, uh, and have onboard medical professionals uh, support the kids and the families as they, uh, as they went through that long haul flight. And then at the receiving end, then Sick Kids is there to, uh, to essentially do the handover and then bring them into uh, their care. Can you tell us anything about the kids? Well, unfortunately with, uh, with all of the um, 
you know, privacy considerations, anything to do with the kids and the families, that's really uh, for sick kids uh, to be able to dress. So, you know, other than saying it's, it's two kids with cancer and their families, I, I can't provide any more details. Are there going to be more of these, Lieutenant Coyle, are there going to be more of these uh, rescue missions, as it were, or help missions? Well, what we've done is we've been able to prove the concept. So this was incredibly uh, an incredibly challenging operation to, to put together. We've now proven the concept. We were able to do that in 10 days. And we're hoping that, um, w- that we're going to be able to, to scale up. So uh, we do want to bring home uh, more kids that are in need. Of course, a lot of these, these kids coming into Poland and some of the bordering uh, countries are going to flow into Europe. But in some cases, there are going to be some kids where it makes most sense to help alleviate the pressures in Europe and to bring them back to Canada. And for those niche, unique requirements, uh, we're going to be there to uh, to mobilize. We've already raised uh, some additional funding, so we're essentially ready to go and we're in the, the planning process to uh, uh, to make that next lift. But nothing is is confirmed at this time, but it's very much we're at the ready, Evan. It's pretty pretty remarkable that this is happening. There are millions of people. How, uh, you know, how many people can we possibly take like this? I mean, it seems like helping kids with cancer get treatment, bringing their families here to Canada is pretty special, pretty remarkable. I mean, you've been on many missions in your life. How, how did this one stack up? Well, it, you know, so so one of the differences between this mission and some of the the non-combatant evacuations that have occurred whether it be Haiti or or Libya for example when when uh, Canada was involved is that those missions were very much led and planned and resourced by the government right so government led and in some cases there were some you know private partners that were coming in to to provide additional capabilities and capacities the difference in this case is that it was led by uh, the private sector and then supported and enabled by a number of other organizations and including the federal government from a uh, visa staffing um, perspective. And they, and they did an amazing job accelerating that process for this particular uh, case. So, you know, I just want to make that distinction in terms of, you know, large numbers of people um, but in this case, this was very special because it was private sector led, but it was an incredibly complex operation. Certainly one that, you know, I know um, Steve and myself would say racks up there with some of the most complex activities and operations that, that right? we've been involved in. Absolutely. The most complex, really, like, because you, you weren't actually going into Ukraine, though, but you but still complex just to get the medical, the details, the help, just remarkable, right? Yeah, I think, you know, what makes it complex is that it's an incredibly um, fluid situation, right, because of the nature of it, because it is private sector, we don't own all of the apparatus. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the variables are changing all the time. So so what's really um, challenging about this is managing that complexity and then that, that ambiguity, including financial ambiguity, right? Are we going to get the funds in time? Are we going to be able to secure the right people at the right time? Are we going to be able to get to Poland in time to get this family before they now need to get moved off because other kids are moving in? So that's what made it incredibly complex is that managing all of these particular variables within an incredibly short window with, yeah. with limited resources. 
And it happened, and it's 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 one of those small shards of light in a in, in a room of darkness. Mike Coyle, retired lieutenant colonel, vice president of Reticle Ventures. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your work, your service to the country, and and, and helping these kids. Thanks. Thank you, Evan. Coming up, we have an extraordinary story. There's a lot of sanctions against Russia, but is the EU selling weapons to Russia? You'll be surprised. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. One thing you might think about is with all the sanctions going on against Russia, the suffocation of Russia, stop doing business with Russia, the focus on the oligarchs, the stopping trade with Russia because of Russia's illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine, you might think, well, of course. And the big issue is Russia has a lot of power over Europe. Why? Because Russia sells gas. It's the oil and gas power. But what you may not know is that the EU does a brisk little trade in selling weapons to Russia. That's right. Even after Russia invaded Crimea and snatched Crimea illegally in 2014, didn't stop the EU from selling weapons to Russia. I didn't realize the extent of it until I was reading an article in a publication called Investigate Europe. And Maria Maggiore is a reporter with Investigate Europe is based in Brussels and in Italy. And Maria joins us on the line to talk about how the EU member states have been selling weapons to Russia right up until before the war. Maria, thanks for being here. Yes, hello, hello, good morning. (laughs) Yeah, good morning. Tell me, uh, give me a sense, if you can, about the weapons trade, how much EU member states export weapons to Russia, and, and and when did it stop, if it has? Okay, so um, officially this is forbidden. This is why it makes it a bigger story because there is an embargo going on since first uh, of August 2014, exactly after, as you mentioned, having the um, invasion of Crimea and uh, war in Donbas. Do you remember? Um, so European governments agreed to ban all sale of weapons to Russia. Uh, But in fact, we have discovered that uh, um, there is a a loophole in this text uh, which authorized to sell arms if um, there are some sort of pending contracts or even there were some previous agreements between companies and Russia, which you can imagine is an enormous gray zone because you can have a a lunch between uh, um, Airbus and and, uh, Russian civil servants. And because of this previous agreement, then you go on selling weapons. This is exactly what happened. And 10 European countries, so not all European Union, but only 10, because all that is documented. There is an official report that every uh, member state uh, must send to Brussels every year about the export of arms the previous year. And so we just counted uh, the numbers in this report. So it's even not illegal 
uh, is just a loophole mm. of the embargo which is going on. So I've seen and, uh, uh, Maria yeah. Maggiore reported with Investigate Europe, and I just to clarify, after the 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 2014 illegal uh, invasion and then. Uh, annexation of Crimea by the Russians, and then, of course, in the east, the Luhansk-Donetsk uh, uh, war that was going on there. You weren't a lot. You were not allowed to sell weapons to Russia, but there was these big loopholes. And if you were doing existing business, and it turns out that there's these loopholes, you could literally drive military trucks through. And uh, ten EU countries continued to sell weapons to Russia to the tune of about over 350 million euros, which is, you know, close to half a billion dollars or more than half a billion dollars Canadian. Who, which countries were selling what kind of weapons to Russia after this, through these loopholes? Okay, so the first country is, as usual, France, because France is the first also arms producer in Europe. And so France uh, sent 152 millions of uh, arms, which is not small or light arms. They sent missiles, aircraft, rockets, um, torpedoes, munitions, of course, bombs. Um, then the missiles, country- torpedoes. France was selling missiles, torpedoes, everything to for, to the tune of 150 million euros. So, like, you know, 250 million Canadian dollars worth to Russia. Yes. Then the second country is Germany with 122 million. And in Germany is even more subtle because they um, authorized these licenses and then this export with um, the, the definition that these arms were for dual use, which for experts is a tricky thing because it means that those arms or let's say transport tools or whatever can be also used for civil purposes. And so because of this dual use, um, even a piece uh, um, oh, um, um, uh, ONG, NGO, sorry, uh, did not uh, did not see that. So it was completely secret in a way. It, it did not attract the attention of um, of media of uh, whatever. And then the third country is my country, Italy. Because Italy, um, with the government uh, of Renzi, authorized 22 million of, uh, of only one company, Iveco, uh, sending uh, blinded vehicles. So um, these are like, um, uh, let's say, trucks blinded, which now we have seen at the border of Ukraine. So in the, at the beginning of the new Russian war, uh, we saw these Italian um, vehicles there with the, with the Russian uh, logo, Ibeco, written in Russian. Um, and my country then stopped. So this was in 2015. And then last year, 2021, uh, Italy sent almost 22 million euros um, to Russia. This is out of the embargo. I have to be precise on that. It's just uh, light hmm. uh, arms, light weapons. But we can ask ourselves whether being under a big embargo with a country um, which did even not sign the international treaty for arms trade, if it was morally, let's say, fair to sell arms 
to even the civil market because the civil market means also the paramilitary bodies, yeah, yeah, yeah. the police. So it's not just you and me, even. So this is quite remarkable. Now, 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 when are these uh, still being sold? Are these contracts? Are they still going on now with all the sanctions, or they've just stopped? But we can't say that. But. Uh, I mean, with this loophole I just explained to you, um, apparently they could go on. But I mean, now I think the public opinion is more attentive and perhaps those companies will be careful. I'd also have to, to, to tell you that, I mean, in a way we are surprised, but we should also tell ourselves that uh, until a few weeks ago, I mean, Putin and Russia was... Um, was a partner of Europe, of many countries. And for instance, one of the main uh, uh, defense uh, company, French mm-hmm. defense company, Safran, has 2,000 employees in Russia and is producing arms already there. Uh, this Iveco Italian company has three factories in Russia. You mentioned that we buy 40% of our gas comes from Russia. So. Uh, Russia is our neighbor also, so now it has become uh, an invader and is doing horrible things with this war, but until a few weeks ago, we were having business with Russia. And that's the extraordinary thing. I just think, the reason I wanted to have you on, Maria Maggiore reported with Investigate Europe, based in Brussels and Italy, through these disclosure documents, the loopholes allow 10 EU countries to sell weapons to Russia, some of them as these trucks from Italy showing up on the border of Ukraine. Maria, thank you for opening our eyes to this, the, re- the reality of how integrated these worlds are and how a war forces us to re-examine some of these relationships. Thanks, Maria. <laughs> Thanks to you. Bye-bye. Bye. That is uh, Maria Majores, who is a reporter with Investigate Europe. I- I- There's something I learned today. Like, I read this article... And I thought, I did not realize the extent to which the EU was selling weapons to Russia even after 2014. Like, doesn't that open your eyes? Anyway, Dan Riskin, risking it all with Dan Riskin. That's right. That's what we may call it. He's coming up next. Stay with us. through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. Well, I, I was a little distracted there. You know, I just uh, I just didn't see this segment coming, which is totally understandable. I mean, you know, I do two hours of radio a day. You can get distracted from all of a sudden the clock comes and but you don't think you'd be too distracted to notice an asteroid the size of a refrigerator hurtling towards Earth. But apparently Earth was too distracted to notice its impending doom. And this, when this happens, when Earth misses a hurtling asteroid and finds out only, oh God, we've only got a couple of hours to adjust to an asteroid that's about to hit, you call Dan Riskin. And that's why we have our new segment, Riskin It All, with Dan Riskin, CTV science and technology specialist. Hello, sir. Hello. This is an eye-opener, isn't it? Just a, a little wake-up call about how just, we're just floating through space, totally distract, vulnerable. Yeah, just distracted living. Yeah, just living the distraction. So, What's going yeah, on? This So on Friday, March 11th, so this is uh, just last Friday, 
Uh, this Hungarian astronomer uh, is looking at the sky. It's about 8.30 at night, and he spots this dot moving across the sky. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I think that's an asteroid. I think I just found an asteroid. And then 14 minutes later, he uploads it to the Minor Planet Center, which is this database where you send your observations. And the, the it basically crunches the numbers, where you saw it in the sky, how fast it's moving, all that stuff. And it did the calculations and said, oh, that's neat. Don't worry. It's not going to hit the Earth. No problem. And then he kept watching, and he's like, oh, I've got some more data I can upload. He uploads more data. And then the model gets more accurate. And then it goes from saying there's less than a 1% chance it's going to hit the Earth to there is a 100% chance this thing's going to hit the Earth. And so, oh, oh, really? How soon? Uh, in about an hour. So between when it was discovered and when it hit the uh, the sky near Iceland was about two hours. And thank goodness this thing was the size of a fridge and not the size of the CN Tower, because that would have been it, right? Like that would have been just lights out. We would have had one hour to phone everybody to, to tweet and say, hey, everybody. So people that are in the know, they were you know exchanging information about this. They had a sense that there was going to be this impact. They knew that it was small enough that it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, we don't have, you know, we can only spread the word so fast when these things happen. And so you can imagine other scenarios where you have like one day or something like that. But just seeing this news really gave me pause because it was like, what if you really did get that announcement? Like, hey, guess what, everybody? 17 hours from now, there's going to be a, an asteroid that hits the Earth and we're all going lights out. So enjoy it. And it, it just gave me a sense of that. Did you actually think that? Like, what do you yeah. do? Like, okay, so what went through your mind? Because I, I, well, I, I want to get to how we missed it. But hold on, let's just go there. So if you got the 17 hours, here comes the asteroid, yeah. then what do you do? What is what did what went through Dan Riskin's mind? Well, this listen, this story came across my radar and it made me think it for the first time. Because I've always imagined that there's sort of two scenarios. One is nobody knows it's coming and all of a sudden the lights go out. The other scenario is oh, in two years we got something coming. Let's put together a mission and send Bruce Willis out on a space yeah. shuttle to land on or whatever, whatever the yeah, yeah. plan is. And there are, you know, there are these NASA programs to like to redirect an asteroid that's on a collision course with Earth. But it turns out this is only the fifth time ever that an asteroid has been found in space before it hits the Earth. It's very, you find asteroids all the time and asteroids hit the Earth all the time, but it's very rare to find one and then that same one hits the Earth. And this is only the fifth time that's happened. So it really sort of gave me, you know, this this idea that maybe I should be thinking about what I would do if I have 12 hours and why aren't I doing that with my next 12 hours anyway, right? I mean, well, what is it that you Yeah, that with? is true. Why aren't you doing what you would do? Yeah. For your day. But, well, I mean, because you got radio obligations. Um, sure. you know, you maybe this them. is what maybe this is what you would do. Maybe you're like, you know, I'll I'll do one hit. Uh, well, what would Evan you show. say? What would Evan Sullivan say? Right. I mean, maybe, like, you know, like, that this is like there are no consequences here. So you get to finally like just unload and everybody gets to know what you're really. Th what's Evan really thinking? But about? I th I actually get this is the one thing people ask me that. Like, would you just like to see what you re this is what I think? Hmm. Like, I don't have this, like, you open the door and it's like, oh, what I really, like, it's not like I, this is it. Like, this is what I say is kind of, this is the kind of, and, and I, I bet this, this is what people always think. Oh, like, if only I had 12 hours left, right. I'd do what I really want to do. Like, what would I, you know, like, I'm with the woman I want to be with. I love my sure. kids. I, uh, my friends are like, I don't, I don't know. I, I make the list. I'm like, you know what? I would, it would be sad, but it's yeah. not like I would say, you know what? I, I'm going to take the mask off and be this, you know, no, right. this is it. This is what I would, pro you? 
Yeah, yeah. You know what? You make a good point because it's not like you're leaving. You're leaving, and everyone else is staying. So it's not like you're leaving a mark that everyone gets to remember. It's really a question of what you yourself want to do with your time. And I think, yeah, I mean, I'm with. I'm, you know, I've got a great family. I've got, you know, a very happy existence. I enjoy intellectual conversations with people like you. Uh, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy learning about right. new science. So yeah, it'd be sad, but I don't know that I would do it. I might try to travel a little more but 17 hours isn't a lot of warning to get to borneo and go see some you know orangutan yeah i i think what you know there be this is we're getting into this uh late saint Pat- patrick's day kind of uh are, are we regrets i've had a few but yeah i i as the old there's an old jewish saying not don't god's not gonna ask why are you not more like moses but why were you mo- not more like yourself hmm. like, why are you not more like dan and and that's really the only question you have to ask you have to be true to your your own heart not anyone yeah. else's heart uh why did we miss the asteroid though like hello i mean it right. seems at what level aren't we missing asteroids so we missed the fridge size asteroid what if it was the size of five fridges Do, <laughs> does that get picked right. up and or no and actually that's a kind of dangerous asteroid well, so you know what? I, I went and had a look at this Minor Planet Center. This is the database to which it was uploaded. And actually, it's just minorplanetcenter.net. Center spelled the American way, unfortunately. And uh, I just had a look because this is where everybody's uploading things. And so this month, 145 near-Earth objects have been reported. This year, 717. Uh, and minor planets discovered 147 this month. Uh, comets, two have been discovered this month. So people are finding stuff all the time. It's just most of it is floating Sorry, out. minor planets were discovered? and we never even heard about that yeah yeah uh, going around other uh, wow. either going around other stars or that are you know small Jeez. things in our you know because it used to be we had nine planets but then everybody realized pluto didn't really cut the mustard yeah. when it came to being a planet and then if you're going to call pluto an almost planet there's a whole bunch in the asteroid belt that look like that and there's all these other ones so now the list is all confusing and long but uh you know there's all these things floating around in space and unfortunately the the it has to be just right for you to notice them because they have to be on the dark side, right? So if it's close to the sun, if it's on that side of the earth, you can't see it because the sun's too bright for the same reason. You just can't see stars during the day. Right. right? right so right. you've got to have a lot of luck for these things. And then you got to get it on a trajectory where you can figure out where it's going and all that stuff. So a lot of the stars have to align for you to really know what it is and where it's coming from and when it's going to hit. And so, you know, they think that they've found about half of the objects that are, that could end civilization wow. that are in our solar system. How, how big is it? How big is, is a, is an asteroid that we have to worry about like what's the size where you go this is oh the holy crap size let me just get scientific i think once you get bigger than like 15 meters diameter you start to get into some ugly stuff i can't i think that was the size of the one that hit russia just a, about right. a decade ago um and then you've got the one north russia there was one that hit at the turn of the 20th century tunguska and that like it's amazing it's just every tree in the for like tens of kilometers around just is lying down facing away from the impact point and you look at those photographs you just blown away but they just they just come out of space and they smack you and so you know it goes back to what we were saying in a sense it's a reminder to just live fully and like enjoy what you can with your life because there is you know we think we know what we have to worry about but sometimes we don't someone said i'd make the biggest margarita you've ever seen and just take a seat in the front porch dan i got a good question from someone we don't have time today but Hmm. it's someone because of the earthquake in japan people are Mm -hmm. asking can you ask dan about the earthquake light what we're going to do can we put that on pause because this is an interesting phenomenon the luminescent phenomenon around an earthquake earthquake light so we're going to pause on that uh folks look up or you'll miss the asteroid that could almost (laughs) kill us enjoy saint patrick's day my good friend thanks dan and risking it all with Dan Riskin. I'll see you all on Power Play tonight. 
we've got time. Enjoy your lives. Enjoy your lives. <laughs> <laughs>